For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Governor Stitt signs a bill allowing for public bodies to hold open meetings online rather than in person. The new law stays in effect until 30 days after the COVID-19 emergency declaration expires or February of 2022, whichever comes first. Ryan, was there any objection similar to the same kind of measure passed last year? I think that there's always concern anytime that you're giving public bodies the ability to, to meet in a way that the public can't come and look at the servants, whether that's you know, boards, agencies, agencies, commissions, uh, you know, whatever that is, there's a real value uh, in being able to be in the room where the conversations are happening, where the decisions are, are being made. You know, there's there's a story not too long ago by Trey Savage from Nondoc where uh, he, he went actually up to a meeting uh, of the I think it was the statewide virtual charter school board uh, because the, the live stream had cut out. And so his reporter couldn't watch it. He jumped in his car, went up there and he had a chance encounter uh, with one of the executives from Epic Charter Schools and had a, an interview, a face to face interview that probably wouldn't have happened. Had the meeting adjourned online and everybody went their way. So there, there is a value, whether it's for the public or the public's representatives in the media. Now, that being said, we're, we're in an extraordinary moment. And I think everybody's recognized that whenever the ability for these agencies and commissions and other, other meetings that have to comply with the Open Meetings Act, when that expired back in, in 2020, uh, we saw the real peril that folks had to face uh, in not just the public, but the, the members of these boards and commissions, many of whom aren't paid. You know, they're, they're on these as public servants, as volunteers. Uh, there was a, an important change to this bill that the governor signed that, uh, a lot, that requires the, the, uh, the meetings to take place in the format with which, in which they were originally posted. Uh, so that's, that's a big thing. So you had you know, some instances where somebody would say it was going to be a public meeting and then they make a decision at the last minute to make it virtual or vice versa. You know, here you've got to stick with your format. Even beyond the emergency, there needs to be some uh, uh, consideration that even though there's value in the public being there in person, uh, any of these meetings you know, should be live streamed so that people can at the very least watch, but if not participate. We're learning a lot in, in, the, in the, the COVID era of, of how to participate remotely, uh, and there's a lot of value to that as well. So uh, hopefully you know, this is a great step. You know, uh, kudos to the governor and the legislative leadership that got this done so fast. Uh, it was a big deal. Uh, you know, Senator Treat, Leader Eccles, Speaker McCall, um, you know, they, they all moved this fast. So you know, good for them. And hopefully there'll be some lessons uh, at the back end of this that we can learn and implement for the future. And Eva, this was uh, Governor Sitt's first bill of the session to sign. Absolutely. And I agree with uh, Ryan. Uh, this was significant. It was important to move quickly on. I mean, when we think about these uh, public bodies, such as school boards, city councils, uh, you have a multitude of boards and commissions that uh, that meet. Many of these uh, folks that serve on these boards, uh, in, in many instances, uh, in communities across the state, you have uh, uh, folks that are older, very vulnerable to COVID-19. I mean, so the, uh, the necessity Necessity for this uh, uh, to be uh, basically put back in place, similar as we talked about, uh, uh, to what had happened uh, uh, when when the outbreak uh, first hit, and we started to really deal with this whole episode of COVID and all of the uh, consequences that uh, came about as a result of it. But I think I think what was put in place was very uh, uh, very carefully crafted. I think the fact that uh, uh, that we see that there are speci- that there's 
specific dates in place um, and that we see that, um, uh, as Ryan said, I think if this is an ongoing learning experience as we continue to find ways to navigate uh, and continue to do the people's business. I, I thought it was interesting. Uh, there were um, there were a few, I believe, Democrat uh, uh, state legislators that uh, had advanced the idea of wanting provisions for House members to be vote to be able to vote by proxy, which the uh, Republican uh, majority caucus had voted down, uh, uh, you know, almost unanimously. So um, I think I think that in the instance of the the public bodies that are now in a position to be able to choose whether they go virtual or whether they meet in person, this was a significant uh, this was a significant significant accomplishment for all in the first week of session. And that was the first bill that Governor Stitt had a chance to sign. Several other pieces of legislation are making their way through the Capitol already in the early part of the session. I just wanted to get your thoughts on some of them. Neva, let's start with you. Which bills are you currently watching? Well, first of all, I mean, I think I think we have to think about the backdrop to the legislative session. I mean, we, we have 3,000 plus bills and resolutions that have that have been put in the hopper for this year. Not uncommon. I mean, when you think about uh, uh, state representatives can put a maximum of eight bills they can author. There's there's the first 800 plus, uh, you know, senators, unlimited numbers. And, and you have uh, you certainly have out of that number 800 what they call shell bills, mm-hmm. which are bills that just uh, basically are sitting there if they are needed at some point later in the session to either, um, you know, move something forward, change with uh, substantive language, whatever, whatever is needed. But um, as we begin to kind of sort through these, I mean, you you get kind of those bills on the front end. You talk about guns, liquor, medical marijuana, the COVID virus. I mean, all of the hot topics, uh, election, you know, election changes, all all of those things are kind of at the forefront in some of the initial uh, conversation and some of these committee hearings. And then as the session goes on, we get down to the real nitty gritty of having to deal with budget and having to deal with some of these bigger issues uh, uh, that, uh, that, that will be on the table that are much more complicated, that take a lot of wrangling around and a lot of uh, negotiating back and forth uh, between all of the parties. So I think, um, you know, I think when you look at the, in the overall, I mean, I'm not surprised that we're seeing, you know, that we are seeing a number of bills that uh, that deal with, for instance, uh, uh, you know, election reforms and whether or not it's going to be something like uh, adding additional days uh, to uh, early voting or some of the ones that probably are are more uh, on the extreme that, you know, I don't think we'll get a lot of uh, you know, get a lot of uh, um, support in in the legislature, such as everyone having to re-register to vote or, uh, you know, eliminating voting uh, voting machines. I mean, some of those things that uh, are, are pieces of legislation that have been put forward. Um, we get a lot of the tr- traditional things that seem to come up every year uh, about uh, I- increases in, in minimum wage, uh, the elimination of straight party voting, uh, making sheriff's races nonpartisan, uh, you know, those things have come up before, uh, daylight savings. Uh, we always have some bill that, uh, you know, it seems to have great either support or angst, uh, you know, among among folks. And then there are a few that kind of creep along that, you know, one in particular that I that I uh, that I saw was a bill that would make it illegal for school employees to strike 
threaten to strike or close uh, school operations as a means of resolving differences um, with any public body. And it went on in this bill. It says that uh, that a violation uh, uh, would result in a two-year revocation of any teaching certificate held. So that will be one. I mean, whether it gets any uh, real uh, what, what it what it looks like and what uh, support would be for something like that. That one would be one, I think, that would uh, create some real um, uh, some real interest and, and, and controversy potentially. So um, I, I think on the front end, long and the short is we see the usual, I mean, the usual mix of bills that, that move forward and we'll sort through those, I think, very quickly and then get down to uh, in 30 or 45 days, uh, the real nut cutting on, uh, you know, the difficult bill that uh, have to be resolved before the end of May. Ryan. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, Neva touched on this, but a a big topic this legislative session is going to be uh, efforts to restrict the initiative petition process. There are over 20 bills filed that would, you know, do this in some manner or fashion. Um, And, you know, what those bills would essentially do is, you know, make it harder for folks to go out and collect signatures and put something on the ballot. And, and maybe make it harder is is an understatement. Many of these bills, the requirements they put in place, uh, would essentially make it a pot, make it impossible uh, for citizens to be able to go out and use this otherwise fundamental constitutional right to legislate policy from the ballot box to go around the state legislature whenever the state legislature isn't ready to go there. And we've seen that on everything from. Uh, medical marijuana with state question 788. And I'm going to talk in a minute about some of the medical marijuana bills that we've seen. Um, you know, it's, it's amazing. You have uh, leaders in the legislature working things like medical marijuana now, you know, two or three years after implementation of state question 788. But if state question 788 itself had been a piece of legislation uh, and you know, up for consideration by the legislature back in 2018, uh, it wouldn't have passed. Uh, you know, it wouldn't have been there. So the initiative petition process is incredibly important to jumpstart a lot of conversations for medical marijuana, criminal justice reform. There's a, there is one bill dealing with initiative petitions that is interesting in just terms of the uh, inside baseball. Uh, and that's a bill by Speaker McCall that would prohibit a, uh, a company or an individual from receiving, from being eligible for state contracts if they represent, whatever that word means, represent, uh, it says candidates, but it, but the real target here are represent campaigns for ballot questions. Uh, you think of like large PR firms like Saxon, uh, Saxon Communications in Oklahoma City uh, that have participated on some of these, you know, large ballot initiatives, but also receive state contracts. And so, uh, you know, there's there's a real interest in what is what's what's happening there. What's the message the inside politics around initiative petitions? Medical marijuana, uh, you know, we're we're you know two years into, into implementation. We have one of the most successful medical marijuana programs in, in the nation. Uh, but even still, there there's a lot of room for improvement. So there's two big omnibus bills, you know, one by Leader Eccles and one by Representative Scott Fetgetter. You know, these two individuals have really uh, um, you know stood out as leaders in building the uh, the legislative framework for. Uh, implementation of state question 788 and uh, and and again they're back at it again this year with uh, with two big omnibus bills that have um, you know, a lot of language in there that that improve upon the, the current system and then finally on the criminal justice reform front we talked last week about how the governor's state of the state was noticeably uh, silent on criminal justice reform and you know, we've got a mixed bag this year we have you know we have some bills that would um, undermine key provisions of state question 780 uh, that, that made 
possession of a drug, a misdemeanor, and recognized that uh, you know we wanted to separate out use from from distribution with state question 780. There are some bills that would roll that back. Uh, there's also some bills that move things forward. You know, Representative Avery Fricks and Senator Shane Jett have legislation that would reform the jury sentencing process in Oklahoma. Uh, Oklahoma is one of the only, if not the only state uh, that prohibits jurors from being able to uh, impose an alternative to incarceration. Mm-hmm. So if you decide to go to trial, you're, you're facing either acquittal or you're facing prison time. They don't have anything in between. And uh, so it, that leads to a lot of you know, really onerous plea deals on the part of the accused. So there's those are some of the things that I, I'm looking at. And, uh, you know, like I said, I think uh, we'll see a lot of, of the medical marijuana stuff is happening fast. Um, there's there's a bill that will allow for transfer of licenses. Uh, there's a bill that will create an out-of-state patient card system that's much better than the one that we have right now. And those, I think we'll probably see action on those standalone bills and possibly on the governor's desk early this session. You know, it's interesting, too, talking about some of the things, I mean, in bills. Um, I, I thought that it was interesting that there is a bill that uh, basically would continue to concentrate uh, more power uh, to the governor, to the chief executive's office. And this one basically essentially gives the governor control of the Oklahoma County and Tulsa County health departments, which are currently independent. And so uh, it will be interesting to see if there's a uh, if there's an appetite in the legislature to once again uh, give uh, more concentrated power to to the governor. And I think the other uh, the other thing that we and we talked about it a little bit last week, but I think something that's going to get a lot of attention very quickly uh, in committee work and moving forward uh, is this um, idea of open transfer. And and one of there's several bills uh, uh, dealing with this uh, that are floating around, but uh, the one by Representative Eccles, uh, House Bill 2673, it basically would allow a student enrolled in a school that is a school that has received an F grade from the State Department of Education for three consecutive years to be able to get an emergency transfer to another public school. So I think, you know, in the whole conversation of, uh, of open transfer, Many people in the legislature, um, certainly that I've talked to, believe that this is one of those bills that uh, has been talked about in various fashions for many years. But maybe this is the year that its time has really come uh, to move to the forefront and uh, and get some action on. So I think this one will be a very interesting, uh, very interesting uh, set of bills to watch and see how they move forward. Voters in the Oklahoma City metro braved the cold weather earlier this week to decide the replacement for now Congresswoman Stephanie Bice in Senate District 22. Political newcomers Jake Merrick, the Republican, and Molly Uden, the Democrat, won their primaries and faced each other in the April general election. Uh, Neva, what do we know about Jake Merrick? Well, um, first of all, I mean, this is not his first race. He ran uh, uh, he ran in the 5th uh, District Congressional race last year. He, he uh, was a, a candidate underfunded, received uh, less than 3% of the vote in that race. But someone who uh, clearly put together a coalition, it appeared uh, that, that there was a a group, uh, they called them, uh, they called it a Liberty Slate uh, that uh, was made up of council candidates, school school board candidate, uh, this uh, the candidate in this uh, uh, legislative um, Senate race uh, and a mayoral candidate in Edmond. And and so there seemed to be this uh, 
kind of coalescing behind this group, uh, Jake Merritt uh, being the uh, uh, being the the pick that they had in the in the Senate special. Uh, election. And it was interesting because there was a real contrast. He's a licensed minister and a personal trainer uh, going up against a, a Republican who was supported by Re- Republican leadership. In fact, the uh, Senate Majority Fund, which is controlled by uh, members of the Republican members of the state Senate, uh, pumped about $20,000 into the race. Uh, and in the instance of um, uh, Carrie Shipley. She also uh, helped fund her race with a significant loan. So she was the well-funded candidate. He was the candidate with kind of the the uh, the ground game and someone who is a had real defined uh, real defined issues. I mean, he's someone that is a uh, unapologetic uh, abortion abolitionist, which uh, basically uh, means that their their intent is to uh, have criminalization of of abortion on the books. Uh, he had uh, some very controversial blogs uh, that talked about uh, that the coronavirus was uh, created in a lab, talked about uh, the massive fraud in the, the uh, 2020 presidential election. So uh, he certainly had uh, I mean, he had a constituency that they were, you know, that they were really putting together to uh, to get out on Election Day and obviously were successful in, in uh, getting past the uh, the candidate that was better, better funded in this instance. And now he's positioned in a race that when you look at the district, 58 percent of the district is Republican, 24 uh, percent Democrat with 18 percent independence. So, I mean, it is a Republican district. And now uh, the April 6th uh, general election, we'll see uh, we'll see uh, uh, Jake Merrick go head to head with Molly Uten. But uh, at, at this point, you have to you have to believe that uh, that he's certainly in the in the strong position to uh, keep that uh, keep that seat in the Republican column after this after the April 6th election. Uh, Ryan, tell us about Molly Uten. Well, you know, you, you couldn't have a more of a contrast in an election here. Uh, you know, you have uh, with with the Republican, you know, he says that he got into the race because he was uh, concerned about what he described as a liberal progressive agenda, a push for social, uh, push for socialism at the federal level. You know, many of the you know, the things that, that Neva said, you got to wonder if Republican leadership right now are kind of hoping for an unlikely upset here, because uh, not only is it did they did they backed the other candidate uh, in that Republican primary, uh, but they they did so I think because they recognized the difficulty of having you know very far right members of their caucus. I mean it's it's kind of strange in Oklahoma that you know we have uh, you know so many uh, we have a, a very large constituency of, of far right voters, um, mm-hmm. but our legislature, even as conservative as they are, um, are probably more moderate than the average Republican voter right now. Uh, in Oklahoma. And so I, I think that they want to control that dynamic and they see having an abolitionist in the chamber, another abolitionist in the chamber is probably something that they don't want to deal with. Um, you know, but Molly Uden, in contrast, you know, she says she got into this race after she got her master's degree in speech pathology from the University of Oklahoma uh, and was working at Oklahoma County Sooner Start, uh, where, which is an uh, early intervention program. She said that she saw these families struggling to get access to government services, and wanted to make their lives better. Uh, so she saw this direct immediate uh, challenge uh, that was being faced by state government 
and said, I'm going to go throw my hat in the ring and, and go, go run for this seat. You know, that's, that's a very different motivation, uh, for, for why you want to get in. And, uh, you know, that there was a, there was a time when that kind of nuts and bolts, no nonsense approach to a candidacy, uh, was the thing that could really get you some crossover votes, uh, in a district like this, where you've got to get crossover votes. Um, now can she pull this off? These these special elections, uh, the turnouts mm-hmm. are are so strange, and then you have things like that happened this this last Tuesday. Now I I'm a I'm an absentee voter. Uh, I, you know, I, I request my absentee ballot, uh, but I forgot to turn mine in, and uh, in time, so I had to go up on Tuesday to my polling place and vote in person, and it was it was cold and miserable. Uh, and I was, I think, one of you know, 30 voters at my polling place uh, for, for a, a school board election. And, you know, the, those kind of turnout dynamics, you know, they can change. They can upset a race. I will say that the Democrats are probably concerned that Republican voter turnout in this primary uh, was more than double what the Democratic turnout was. Right. And so if you're if you're looking at, you know, who are you going to get to show back up uh, at this special general election? Now, those turnout numbers that's going to be concerning, but it's a special election. It could be anybody's game and it'll be interesting. I think the most interesting thing to see, you know, Democrats are all in behind Molly Uten. It'll be interesting to see if the Republican leadership now uh, falls in line and, and does what they can for their candidate to try to help him get across the finish line. One of Oklahoma's first black female lawmakers died earlier this week at the age of 88. Maxine Horner spent 18 years serving the people of Senate District 11 in Tulsa from 1987 till she was term limited in 2005. Ryan, what are your thoughts on the passing of Horner? Yeah, uh, Senator Horner is a, a giant in, in, in Oklahoma politics, um, yeah, even beyond her service in the in the legislature. The, the things that she has done to raise awareness and preserve the memory and promote reconciliation from the Tulsa race massacre uh, will uh, are, are as, as large as anything that she's done uh, or did whenever she was in the legislature. But she was one of the first folks in the legislature that helped set that up. Uh, and she was talking about this. She was one of the uh, she was the, the first uh, African-American sworn in uh, African-American woman sworn sworn into the Oklahoma State Senate. Yeah, I visited with uh, my friend and mentor this morning by by text, former State Senator Kelly Haney, who is the first mm. Native American sworn into the Oklahoma State Senate, uh, and he's he was reminiscing about his service with uh, Senator Horner and said that she was a, a special public servant that she had the ability to to form relationships uh, with with senators. She was incredibly effective, which is something we don't really measure lawmakers on a lot these days. But your ability to actually get something done, yeah, uh, you know, he talked about her ability to get things done, um, and that you were never. Uh, at a loss for where she stood on the big issues. Uh, you know, she was, she was very clear in her positions. And I think that um, the, the history that she leaves behind and the path that she uh, blazed, I mean, it's, it's kind of remarkable uh, that she had to blaze those, those trails uh, as late as 1980 uh, and the 1990s and into the early 2000s. But nevertheless, she did. Um, and, and she did that kind of reluctantly. Um, she was always interested in public service, but went back to school later in life uh, and was working as a legislative aide in a, in a, a congressman's office and you know, decided that public service was for her. But she kind of had to be talked into running. But once she did, she embraced it wholeheartedly. And, and the state of Oklahoma is better for it. it was a, it's a tremendous loss for everyone. And my condolences uh, to her family in particular. Neva. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think when you look at someone uh, like Maxine Horner, her life uh, is really the epitome of what you would what you would characterize as a true public servant. I mean, someone who at every turn uh, just made dramatic uh, uh, accomplishments and not for herself, but for those she represented and for the state as a whole. And when we think about, I mean, as as Ryan alluded to, I mean, here is someone who um, was it was involved in creating the uh, Tulsa Race Riot Commission, someone who chaired the Citizens Committee overseeing the search of the burial sites uh, from the massacre, uh, someone who uh, was a, a trailbra- a true trailblazer at every turn. I mean, she is the co-founder and the board member of the of the Greenwood Cultural Center. I mean, when you think of the list of things that she was involved with, where her passions were for education and the arts, and one of the things that will be one of her legacies from a legislative standpoint point is that she was the driving force behind the creation of the Oklahoma Higher uh, Learning Access Program, OLAP, as we call it, which now we call Oklahoma's Promise. Uh, And this scholarship program is for students from lower income families, something that uh, is uh, monumental in terms of its impact, not only on uh, this generation, but future generations and in terms of access to uh, higher education. Uh, She was also the sponsor of legislation that uh, created at the Oklahoma Jazz Hall of Fame. I mean, when you look at uh, where her passion was and how she really put her, her that passion to work uh, to engage and, and develop um, uh, coalitions of people from all walks of life to be engaged and involved in these in these endeavors. I mean, it is something that certainly um, will be a legacy. Not only uh, not only that uh, that her two children can certainly be proud of and reflect on, but that uh, all of Tulsa, in particular, where she was born, where she was raised, where she represented uh, her. Uh, district for those 18 years that we talked about until she was term limited. Um, all I think all of us have to pause and say that uh, everyone, as as the mayor of Tulsa, G.T. Bynum, said uh, in some of his remarks this week, he said that Tulsa's past, present, and future benefit from Senator Horner's public service, and and I uh, I certainly agree with that, and and join those that uh, mourn her loss this week. You know, it's when you when you think about the legacy of a public servant, of, oftentimes the, the things that uh, that outlive you uh, as a public servant that people just take for granted. You know, you know I, I think it, mine, I, I hope that mine is the last generation that uh, graduated from Oklahoma schools uh, that you know didn't weren't taught about the Tulsa race massacre. Right. Um, and, and now we're you know, we're, we're all having these conversations and it, it's and the the, the real scope of that uh, political violence that happened in our own state uh, is becoming more and more known. That wasn't the case when Senator Horner was starting this work. And I think that she recognized that. And that's something that's, you know, when, when we look at, we live in this culture where we want immediate results. Uh, we, you don't get immediate results oftentimes. Uh, and you know, she she worked on that for decades. Uh, OLAP, the number of students that have gone to college or will go to college and be able to afford to go to college, uh, and get a degree and invest in themselves and their families and their communities and their state. Um, and they probably have no idea who Senator Horner is, uh, but, you know, but for her, uh, their lives would be remarkably different. And, you know, that's, that's the real mark of a public servant is the things that, that outlive and outlast you that you won't get any credit for, but you know, in your heart of hearts are the right thing to do. And, and that's, that's, uh, uh, we, I think we can all say thanks for that. 
And Neva and Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.